So I'm like trying to get my breath, so I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. And it's only when I try to sit up, that's when I sort of realise, hang on, I, I can't feel my legs. I'm Sonia Morton Firth, and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Paralysed from the waist down. Today, my guest is Jason Anker, MBE. And then he just paused, and it seemed like an eternity, and you could see him trying to have what to say. And he just said, You'll never walk again. Jason, thank you so much for being a guest mm. on my show. You're more than welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Jason, ever since we met a few, was it, oh God, it was a few months ago yeah. now, doesn't time Yeah, absolutely. Last March. Yeah. yeah, it was March at <coughs> uh, Mark's event. Yeah. I've been dying to get you on my show and I've been really, really looking forward no, to this. So, um, but before we start, um, I would love to get a bit more of your background before the accident happened okay. and where you were. Maybe where were you were mentally before that day? Um, my stepdad brought me up, and I regard him as my dad. So I wasn't, I wasn't, didn't ever miss anything out as a child. You know, I, I saw my real dad, so I can't say there was any, any actual trauma in my you know, early years. Um, we lived for five years. Mum and dad ran a pub, so I lived upstairs in a pub. So I had a great teenage years. You know, always alcohol for, for the parties with my friends yeah. and sort of things. Um, and then things start to go slightly wrong for me when I was about 15, we, we moved, you know, not a great year to move, you know, doing the exams, and we moved to Sheffield, and yeah, I started to go off the rails a little bit, and I didn't really achieve much at school, and missed my exams, you know, I was expected to do quite well, I'd sort of failed all my exams, um, but my big passion in life was art, I was very artistic, oh. you know, and I, I managed to get my qualifications in art, I passed that okay. And I've always, I always wanted to be a sign writer. It was just my dream job to do. And yeah, I, I was very fortunate to get an apprenticeship and the company I worked for made replica vehicles, 1920 replica vehicles, and we did delivery on the vehicles. And we, oh, we worked for them, and did loads of work for Harrods, and did some amazing projects, a great company. And I always say that it wasn't necessarily the best paid job in the world, but I loved it. And that, that's a yeah. miserable thing, yeah. isn't it? Virtually never had a day off and um, did the usual guy thing. Ended up with a girl. It wasn't really a proper relationship, sort of very, very casual. And, but she got pregnant when she was 19. Mm. So obviously a bit of pressure from families and ended up getting married. I don't think particularly either of us wanted to, but we just did. You, you thought know, you were doing the right doing thing? Doing the right thing. I was 21, 22. And, you then you realise you've got no money, you know, all, all your money you earn goes into bills. So life wasn't particularly very good. Um, but I still had my job. You know, my job was sort of the saving thing. Um, by this time, we got two children. Um, but, you know, in a pretty poor relationship, not wanting to go out with your friends. I wasn't socialising as much. I'd, I'd stopped playing football with my friends. Stopped going to a football. I was a big Forest fan at the time. Couldn't afford to get the season tickets. So the marriage was, was really going down now. Do you remember um, where you were in terms of um, your mental state of mind the day of the accident? Um, I, I do now. At the time, I didn't. I just know I was really, really unhappy. And I thought that's what it was. So I was very, very distracted. I ended up working in, in jobs I didn't want to do, just to you know, just try and try for family. 
Um, so the, the year before my accident, I was working in jobs on building sites, on power stations. Some jobs actually paying quite a lot of money, but I was still dreadfully unhappy. So at this point, marriage was in crisis. I was drinking far too much. We got a lot of debt. So it was just literally surviving from week to week. Um, I probably start the night before my accident. I was at a party. Mm. I was at a party and I was actually working with my supervisor who I worked with. And he suggested we go home because we've got work in the morning. Um, again, not really I was at the time, but because my, my poor state of mind at the time and all the pressure I was under, I stayed out. And I, you know, I can't remember going home, but I can remember, I can remember being picked on the next day. And, and my first instinct was I couldn't go to work. I was, I was on over. There's no way oh, I could work gosh. on a building site, but next thing is a bang on the door, the supervisor, so I decided that I might as well go in. Slept on the way, on the back seat of the car, so I was wrong over, and you get, get to work, and it was freezing cold. It was, a, it was actually the first day back after the Christmas holidays. So, in a job I didn't want to do, um, hung over, with marriage problems, with debt issues, totally on the way, I just thought, you haven't got no options. This is just this is your life. This is what you're gonna to have to do. So what happened? Um, on the day itself, it was a like I say, it was a really cold, foggy, icy day. We was actually repairing a, a flat roof, um, and then around half past two in the afternoon, a, a rush job came in. We had to go and work on a different part of the building. Um, last job of the day, time pressures against us. Unfortunately, I fell from a ladder, um, fell 10 feet, yeah. And when you, were you conscious when you fell or, um, or were you I, not unconscious? People often say they can remember themselves falling, everything's in slow motion, it wasn't for me. I, I, I felt that I slipped, unless I've regressed the memory, I felt, I can remember feeling that I slipped and the next time I was on the ground, just looking up. And can you remember what was going on in your mind? Yeah, because at the time I was really, really winded, or I thought I was winded. So I'm like trying to get my breath, saying, I'm okay, I'm okay. And it's only when I try to sit up, that's when I sort of realise, hang on a minute, I can't feel my legs. So it's just like, well, terror, everything you can imagine, and just panic. Did all of that at that time go through your mind? Did you also, did you think, oh my gosh, this is yeah, it, I can't I, do, I mean, yeah, you do, you panic straight away. But then, because of human nature, no, I'm a bit right. It'd be fine. Even though I was trapped between two buildings, the ambulance was called, they couldn't move me because they suspected a spinal injury, so the protocol is don't move. But I was getting cold, I was shivering, so after about an hour of to and fro and what I was going to do, we just said, no, we need to get into hospital. He's, you know, he's going. And then I was transferred to a local hospital. Um, Initially went for an x-ray, so still in sort of disbelief, and everyone around you sort of telling you to calm down. And then I can remember being taken to a room to wait for results of the x-ray, and you know, the doctor walked in the room. And I always remember it, as he walked through the door, he had a big smile on his face. So, well, presumably yeah. you thought everything was okay. So, as he's walked towards me, with his big smile, you know, he's, you know, of course it was going to be okay. You know? These things don't happen to you, to you, they always happen to other people. Um, and he basically said that I was suffering from a condition called spinal shock. And he expected my sensation to come back within the next hour, couple of hours, couple of days, even a few weeks. It could be a long process, but everything was going to be okay. So obviously relief. Gosh, and, yeah. okay. And then just, 
just as a side comment, he just said, oh, maybe, maybe it would be a good idea to send you for a CT scan, just for a closer look, just to make sure that we've, we've not missed anything, but you know, it's just routine. So got sent for a CT scan, got brought back in the room, again, waiting for him to come in. Uh, wife was sat on the side, we was chatting, you know, talking about maybe, maybe she's looking at things slightly differently now and our life is going to be different. You know? And then the door opened and he walked in and he wasn't smiling. Mm. So he didn't, didn't have to say anything to me. I just, I knew in that instant that, yeah, as he's walking towards me, and he sat at the side of the bed and I thought, yeah. And what, can you, can you remember yeah, now? Yeah, I can, you know, a lot of that early memories, he's been pieced together, I must admit, by memories of what people have said, but I can remember what he said to me. He just said, um, we have found a small fracture in your back. And he spoke so slowly, like he was, just, he was waiting on every word for him to come out. And you could tell he was struggling. And then he said, we have found huge spinal injuries. And then he just paused. It seemed like an eternity, and you could see him trying to have what to say. And he just said, you'll never walk again. And with that, he stood up and just walked out of the room. And that was it. And he walked out, and he was still like, has he just said that? And like, he, was, he was trying to figure out, no, he, he, but, yeah. Did, did, you, did, you, did it sink in? No, no, so, no I, still, I still didn't believe it. I still... Um, I went for an operation uh, the next day and they put two steel rods into my back, or titanium rods in my back to stabilise my spine. And then I was sent to a spinal unit in Sheffield, you know, a spinal re uh, rehabilitation centre. And I, still con I was still convinced that's where you go to learn to walk. Yes. Because you know, that's what you see on, on the movies and in TV. You go to these places and you try really, really hard and... You have this miracle, and you can there. see. I can see them. Yeah. You've got two bars yeah, two there, bars and you're walking and you a lot. Because it's all you ever see. You never, you, you never say, hear the stories of people who don't get better. It's always the you know the people. The one, I think there's one young guy in there who walked out. Everybody else in there had suffered life-changing injuries. Had they given you any sort of hope, or sort but, of said, "Oh, it may give, change"? In a way, it's not their fault. They give you false hope because. Every spinal unit, every spinal injury, like a brain injury, is, is different, and no one, no one is the same. So they don't hundred percent know how bad these injuries are, and they then say to you, after about two years, whatever you are left with is probably what you're left with for the rest of your life. And, but then you hear these stories of people who've, who've suddenly got a feeling back after you know, a year or so. So you're still in this place where you know it's going to be okay, but. I always remember the doctors telling me it would be life-changing forever, and yet the tea lady who used to come around every day, she had a feeling I was going to be okay. So do you think I used to believe the, the experts the or, the, or, the, or the tea lady? She had a feeling, you know. It, but yeah, it was it was really bad. It was. I didn't get on with um, <laughs> the hospital environment. Was unique in a way that everyone there accepted people in wheelchairs. You, know, you got injured, you know, injured the patients and all the staff just accepted and all the hospital was like all on a flat surface. So you got quite accustomed to being in a, a safe environment. And it was very late in your uh, rehabilitation where they encouraged you to go out. So my friends used to come over, 
pick me up and take me out to the pub for a few pints. Then you, then, then you start experiencing steps. Then you start experiencing no, no toilet facilities. So the, the enormative of what you're going to go through. How, I mean, how did it affect you both physically and mentally? Um, again, because it was 29 years ago, even back then the hospitals didn't really talk about your mental state. There was a, there was a counsellor in there who was more there to tell you what benefits you could claim and what, you know, make sure you'd be okay. Your house was adapted and things like this, but mentally it was very little. You know, I think you could get a sleeping tablet if you couldn't sleep and stuff like that. It was really, really bad, but solely geared up for your physical rehabilitation. And that's what it was all about. You know, you was introduced to sport to try and give out focus, but I'd see all the patients sort of get involved with basketball and these other sports, and I didn't. I was, I thought, this is not, this won't make me feel better, you know. And that, that realization that marriage was in such massive problems before my accident, so I was convinced it was over straight away. And how did your marriage fare after that? Um, I cannot ask what for one day. I got released on April the twenty fifth, nine ninety three, and she left the next day. She left the next the day. Next day with the kids, two young children. So. So not yeah. only were you paralysed, couldn't use your legs, yeah. you were in a home that presumably yeah. wasn't necessarily no, adapted At that to... time, no. I mean, we had no money, was in a council house, it was totally unadapted. Um, and then your wife yeah. leaves you yeah. the next day? Yeah. I mean, how, how did you cope, Jason? I, I didn't, I didn't. But because, because of my personality, um, I didn't like expressing I was struggling. So you put on this brave face, and the only way I could do it was by drinking. I mean, did you have mum, dad? Yeah, obviously, fam family was there. Family was always there, you know, massively. I would not, never have got through this one. Family, mum, dad was amazing. My sister was just fantastic, and people ran around. But again, people, apart from the parents, obviously, just trying to help by giving me things and trying to make sure that way. And then friends, not knowing what to say, was take down the pub and get you drunk because. They don't, know what, they don't know what to say. They, and they was all struggling themselves. You know, it was, a, it was a tight group of friends and they didn't know what to say for the best anyway. Um, so, how, so how were you feeling with all of this? Um, pretty, well, very low, but then very unable to express how bad I was feeling. So by me going out a lot and getting drunk, following that brave face, you'd be laughing, be joking. I'd be falling out of my wheelchair, laughing about it, and you know, I, I, I was out all of the time. You know, just I, I, I lost everything. You know, my marriage. It, I don't mean it in a wrong way, but that wasn't like the biggest thing that went wrong in my life. It was losing my kids. You know, at the time, Abby was three. Sam was five months old. Oh gosh. Yeah. So it was just. Just, you know. Could you see them? I mean, yeah, I saw Abby. I mean, I was always close to Abby. She was three, so she was sort of manageable. Mm. Um, and then my ex-wife, um, I used to see my kids quite a lot. So Abby used to come and stop Monday to, Monday to Thursday. And so I'd stay in the house with Abby and she'd be there for three nights. But then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'd just be partying out, drinking, all night, you know what I mean? Just completely off the rails and not knowing how to cope, you know? And, and back then, mental health support was a counsellor and some antidepressants. He was chatting about some my past and what, you know, I need to book my ideas up and there's hope and all this. It wasn't great counselling. Um, Were you angry? 
extremely with everything, with everybody and everything. <laughs> did, who did you blame? Was there time? Um, yeah, I lashed out. I blamed everybody. You know, I blamed everybody. I even blamed myself quite a lot as well. So not only blaming other people, you've got self-resentment because you blame mm. yourself for ruining, you ruined everything. You ruined, you, I, I saw no future whatsoever at all of, of getting out of this. I mean, this was, what, 26 years? 29. 29 years. I mean, in, in that period, as I understand it, it took you the good part of 26 years. Yeah. To start talking, to start yeah. to, to being where yeah. you are, you've, yeah. you've got an MBE, yeah. and we'll come on yeah. to talk about that. What what was that journey like, those 26 years? It's, it's been horrific. <laughs> I can't put it into words. It's been absolutely horrific. You know, and, you know I found, I, I managed to find a way of coping. Um, initially, um, drugs, drink, anything that would make me cope, I'd go down that route, and I justified it by I was coping. Didn't the drugs and the drink make it worse? I mean, I know, yeah. obviously, initially, it would yeah. make it yeah. better, but yeah. it's a... Yeah, yeah. But I think, I think when it, you know, when I got into the rave scene, obviously, I was, I was well into my sports, football, you know, and obviously, you can't play football no more. So that, then that friend group, even though they want to be there for you, you know, you're stopping them doing the things that they want to do. So you sort of, I broke away from that chain of friends and got into the wrong crowd. And, and then... When I started getting onto the racing, and it was just like first time being accepted anywhere, and it felt it felt incredible. Do you remember that first time, that feeling of taking your first E? Yeah, um, uh, it, it, you can imagine some of the absolute rock bottom. Um, didn't really want to be on this planet anymore. I was too terrified of committing suicide, but knew I had nothing to give, nowhere to go, and then taking that pill. And fifty minutes later for the first time thinking that I can actually do this, I have got something to do. And yeah, it was incredible. But I could never get a feeling ever again. It was only the first time, it was that lift, but I just didn't think I could ever get to them heights ever again. So that became quite destructive then, because I was always chasing that feeling again. Did you reach a low point that, that you thought, right, that's it? Yeah, I, I think, I, I don't know the phrase is called. I wasn't suicidal, but I, I, I just didn't care if I, I lived or died at that moment. So I was very reckless with some of the choices I was making. So I just didn't care. But I felt so guilty about leaving behind my kids. Did you ever wish you hadn't survived? Yeah, yeah. It, it lasted a lot of time, a long, long time. You know, why, why does, why was I spared? You know, what, why couldn't I have an accident and died? And that, that would have been it. Especially, especially when I could see the trauma it was causing my family as well. So it was like, it had been better off for everybody if I had not sort of survived. And didn't you end up in hospital again? Yeah, not, um, two years after my introduction to ecstasy, um, I was one of the, the people it had an adverse effect to. I was rushed into hospital in the February of 95. I think we went out to a club in Sheffield. Um, on a bus, a bus trip, someone's birthday. We got in the club. Someone got some different pills we'd not been taking before. A lot cheaper than what we'd been paying for them as well. So the warning signs were there anyway. I was drunk anyway. I, I decided I wasn't going. I was drunk, got picked up, got to this club, and it was instant. I started hallucinating straight away. Uh, I just knew something was odd. 
Um, and I talked to some of my friends was there, so yeah, we aren't on a great time with these pills, there's something quite right. And that's all I can remember. And the next thing I woke up, I was in hospital. I think it was like uh, 70, 80 days later. Oh my gosh, yeah. so you were literally you were out for yeah. 17 or 18 yeah, days? They, put, they, they suspected serious brain damage. I was put into a, um, a life support machine, put into an incubator. Mum um, and dad was told after day 15 that I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to survive. And if I did, I'd be severely brain damaged, and there was advice to turn the machine off. So it was just, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not part, I'm not party to any of this, obviously. I, I yeah. can't say that was a traumatic part of my life, because I was telling them the way it was happening. But when you woke up and you were sort of told that, did you think, did that change things? It, it, well, yes and no. I mean, at the, at the time, this, the, the effects of the pills that had on my body, it's destroyed so much of me. My brain injury I've suffered, that's why I slur my words slightly, if you notice. I've got a slight slur to my words, like a couple of drinks, and that's, that's the last I thing. I thought it was the vodka I put no, in your water. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes, I'm very susceptible to alcohol anyway. Um, I lost, I lost use of the left hand side of my body completely, because it was like on the string. The right arm I could hardly move, so you can imagine, I'd already had an accident where I'd lost my legs, yes. and now by self inflicted, I'd lost the use of my arms as well. So I was five months in rehab. Five months, literally now to speak again, how to dress. I couldn't do anything. I literally, I was worse. I was definitely worse than what I did when did I was in the first Did you care? Um, and that, that sounds a, a very sort of flippant again, question. But... Again, it was such a long journey. I mean, to see the trauma of my family again, going through all that, I and mean, then the guilt of not speaking up and the guilt of my family not thinking they was there for me and that they was... They felt partly to blame because they knew something wasn't right. And I think that's it. it I wasn't taking drugs and they didn't notice a change in me. They'd all noticed something wasn't right and not said anything. And, but we couldn't say anything because I'd fight my handle. If anybody had mentioned anything around me, my moose was that bad. I'd, you know, I'd throw cans of beer across the room and shout and swear at people. Was, now that doesn't seem like the Jason I'm no, sitting no, in front of today. No, so no. What, what was that switch that flicked? Um... It didn't switch for a long, long time. It didn't switch. Um, I went back into counselling. Um, and I decided to actually give him a go. Instead of just thinking, nod your head and get the antidepressants, I may as well listen to what this guy has to say. And he, he, he came up with a concept of, of opening up an opposite. And he asked me what number I was today. If number one was suicide and 10 was ecstasy, where would you be? And he, he actually laughed to himself, so maybe I shouldn't say ecstasy, but <laughs> 10's a really good place. Um, and I used to say number two, and they say, well, try and be number three and all this, and everything's got an opposite. And I, I got stuck on number five. I asked him the question, what's the opposite of five? Oh, said, very good. Yeah, and he said, well, this isn't one. And so that's where I stayed. I thought I can just about cope with life mm. being number five. Nothing makes me really happy, but if I work really hard, I don't get, I don't get sad. Where are you now? Um, I flip. I'm happy to flip. I, I, I can flip daily. I can, I'm happy to be, it's all right to have a bad day. I don't care some days from a number four or a number three if I've decided, you know, we get some bad news or a bit of stress. Um, but I'm happy to some days I'm up to seven or eight, even nines. You know, I'm in a good day. Because I think that's it. I was so terrified of, I was so terrified of slipping back. If I let myself get too happy with something, what if it went wrong? That's all I could think about. What if it goes wrong? What if I slip back and get down there again? So it's like the being terrified of, of what the yeah, repercussions. Yeah, repercussions would be. 
of opening up. So, and I stayed there for years. I stayed there for over 20 years, just just coping. Just nothing meant, like devoid of feelings. So I didn't get into relationships. Um, a lot of drunken relationships. And again, I feel, real, I feel really ashamed of track of people because I didn't care. When I was drunk, it's like the switch. And the, the brain injury I've got is when I get drunk, I switch. Yeah. And it's like a, it, it, there's no limit. So sometimes I can have two drinks and I switch. Other times I can drink normally and be fine. So I, I go out some nights and I, I go. And when I've gone, I'm like a different person. I'm, I'm, I can't, I'm not using an excuse that I have no recollection whatsoever. Yeah. And then people tell me the next day what I did or you know, who was upset or, and then, you know, the, the stupid affairs I used to have were just ridiculous. Just really bad, toxic relationships, often with people I knew, we'd been in relationships with people I knew, with partners. And Sounds I, to me like you're still beating yourself up, Jason. A little bit, yeah. I'm on a journey at the moment. I'm helping myself at the moment. That's what I'm doing the last few years, which you'll get to. I have changed. But yeah, there's so much guilt I've labelled on myself that I can't let it go. It's like, so do, do you deserve a good life? But yeah, so even when life turned round, I started doing presenting, talking about speaking so from 12 years ago, and life outward looked good, you know. You've got an MBE, and I know you've done a lot of work in health and safety. Tell me a little bit about that. How so that's, did that make you feel? That's an yeah, amazing so, achievement. So it started 12 years ago. I, I used to spend a lot of time with friends in Tenerife. I got compensation in 2007. So all of a sudden you got £400,000 in the bank. Um, it was put in a trust fund, so it meant I could... Which, so, can like, I just say that is absolutely, I think that's appalling. Yeah, it was. 400,000 yeah. pounds for changing your life. I waited 14 years for it as well. It was just like, it was so bad. It was so bad. I think my core fees were like 200,000 pounds. We took off that for my, yeah, it was horrendous. Um, but obviously it gave me, it gave me a, a bit of financial security. But when you, when you, when you're all your friends are at work and you've got, you just, nothing, I buy things, not, nothing, yeah. nothing had any value to me. So I spent a lot of time living in Tenerife with friends over there, uh, even contemplating moving over there at one stage just to start again, escape, and not, not deal with what was going through in my mind. I'd just have a fresh start somewhere. You know? mm. But it didn't work out that way. Um, and then I was in the UK at a Christmas party, contacted by somebody who just asked me a question while I was in a wheelchair. So I just sort of fell off a ladder, you know, the usual. It, it, but it was more interesting now. I need to talk to you. We arranged a meeting and it turned out he did safety and he got my number from somebody and blah, blah, blah. And long story short, he took me out onto a project he was working on. I sat at the back of the room and said, oh, I can't do that. I can't present, I can't talk to bad people. I, mean, I, can, I could barely talk about it to myself. So there was no way I could sit and talk about all my issues to somebody else. Um, but then I did a, um, he, he put me on the spot on one of the jobs. And I, I had to ramble through the story in about five minutes about my life. And somebody just said, oh, that's, that's quite inspiring. Um, and how did yeah. that make you I feel? I feel amazing, yeah. That's so those words, that is so inspiring. Yeah. You yeah. are so inspiring. Yeah. yeah. And it was all that thing that if I could then share what I'd been through to prevent someone else going through what I'd been through, would that be appealing? And yeah, it had to be. There had to be, some, there had to be something that came out of this. So that's how it started. It was a really slow talk. And it was always about reliving the accident, Going over everything that happened that day, and you know, 
I was speaking sometimes like four times a day and like reliving that story, it became really, really difficult. Is it still difficult? Not now, so I've dealt with that part of it. I don't actually go, when I present now, I don't linger on the accident. I just tell people what I did and move on. It's all about the consequences that that choice I made that day at work and how it's affected my life over this time. And you mentioned the MBA, which I got in um, 2015. It was amazing. I can remember opening the letter. I thought it was some kind of court summons. You know, I got to be a, a juror. And I was so busy at work, I thought, I can't deal with this today. And then I opened the letter and I read it. And it was like, yeah. But because I was still quite in a bad place mentally, the day we went to the palace to receive it, my dad came and my daughter, I was, I was made up for my dad. He was so proud that day. It was like, you know, or what he'd been through with me. To have his moment, it was, it was amazing. But for me, nothing. Because I was still in that place, things don't matter. Don't get too excited about this. And so I didn't enjoy the day probably like I should have enjoyed it. You weren't proud of yourself? No, not at all. No. It didn't, it, even that didn't make up for what I put people through, in my mind. Wow. So, Jason, how did you shift your mind? Um, it probably started four years ago. Um, I'd already started speaking about doing some well... I, I tried to use some well-being to my life. Just another thing. I've skirted with so many things to try. What, what sort to try. of tools do you um, use? Well, breathing. I, obviously, I touched on Buddhism, but then I took, took a few things out of Buddhism and just applied to my daily life. So trying to be more grateful and practice a bit of gratitude. And I love that. It, How yeah. do you practice gratitude? Oh, that's it. That's why I wasn't working properly, so I was only practising it. I was only sort of doing it. I think that's a good word when people say, I practice gratitude, so we're not doing it properly. We're only practising it. You need to do it. And... Even now, I, I'm just getting my head around what it actually means to be grateful for things. It's not just words and make you feel good. It's actually really, really believing it and being grateful for every single moment. But that started because I was aware that in the safety world, well-being was started being talked about in the workplace. And I started looking at it and then making the connection between my accident and my well-being at the time of my accident was some correlation why I did what I did. But then I was approached for the second time, I was approached early in my speaking career to write a book. And again, I'm not worthy, I didn't feel worthy of writing a book. I didn't think my story was relevant. It took a bit of persuasion. And I, I was introduced to someone, but again, I think th things, I always find a reason why things happen. I don't believe things happen for a reason, but I was looking for a reason why things happen. And I, I just made aware of an article by a lady who was helping a lot of females in the safety world write books. You know, I made contact with her and by chance she did quite locally to where I lived and we had a few meetings and discussed what I wanted to do and she said she'd help me. So I had a ghostwriter, but it really helped me because at the time I was, there were so many things I locked in my brain. I don't think I'd have got them out without the help of the writer probing me yes. to open some things. And it was a really difficult six months of my life. But I think by writing the book, what it did for me was it's when I read it for the first time. That's when it clicked. And that's when, for the first time, I felt I'm going to have to change. And it, it, that was it. So, yeah. So, the Jason that I've got sitting in front of me here, how is he different to the Jason that went up that ladder? I'm very different. And I'm different in a good way. I think I'm the best version of me I've been in all probably all my life. I mean, my friends say to me, it's like having my mate back again, but I feel like I'm a better friend now than I was before. Because, you know, in the years, a few years before my accident, 
I'd always started slipping on this this path of not caring about other people, and so I wasn't in the. I don't think I was a great person a couple of years prior to my accident. If I'm totally honest, but now I feel like I am. You know, I feel like a. You know, I'm, I'm more caring, definitely more caring about other people's feelings, and yeah, just a better friend in general, actually. Jason, I can tell you, you are an amazing, amazing, amazing guy. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like, and you'll get it straight into your inbox.